This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight's webinar, Environment, War, and Conflict, will focus on how climate-fueled catastrophic environmental events have and will continue to force mass displacement of populations within and across borders, creating increasing threats to the health of migrant and refugee populations. These threats include the direct and indirect consequences of war and conflict, such as a lack of clean air, water, nutrition, and housing, increased exposure to infectious diseases, and psychological trauma. The session will also explore how war and conflict fought over the control of fossil fuel supplies has in turn fueled our climate crisis and related social and environmental injustices. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Robert Gould, who will moderate this session. Dr. Gould is an associate adjunct professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UCSF and president of the San Francisco Bay Area Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Thank you, Anne-Marie, and it's uh, wonderful to be here, and I want to welcome everybody to, to tonight's session, which, as Anne-Marie has outlined, is too often not been looked at in terms of when we're looking at environmental health, issues of climate change, that our many expert speakers tonight are going to be able to address so well. So it's my distinct pleasure to uh, open up our session tonight by introducing Dr. Barry Levy, who's adjunct professor of public health at Tufts School of Medicine and a consultant in environmental and occupational health. He has co-edited 20 books, including War in Public Health, Social Injustice in Public Health, and Climate Change in Public Health. And he just completed writing a book on the recognition and prevention of the health impacts of war entitled From Horror to Hope, which will be published later this year. He has worked in Kenya, China, Thailand, Jamaica, and Central and Eastern Europe, and he has served as president of the American Public Health Association, where it's been an absolute delight for Patrice Sutton and I to have worked with Barry for many decades. Barry, welcome. Likewise. Thank you very much, Bob. Uh, this evening, I'm going to be talking about the many impacts of war on public health, and I'd like to share my screen here. And I have no uh, financial disclosures. Uh, so first, I want to, in, in a summary fashion, talk about the major impacts of war. They include injury, disease, and premature death, mental disorders, violation of human rights, forced displacement, damage to civilian infrastructure, everything ranging from hospitals and clinics to water treatment and supply systems, contamination in the environment, and I'll, uh, I'll uh, say more about each of these issues as we go on diversion of uh, human and financial resources, and war causes even more violence. Uh, it's one thing to talk about it in somewhat abstract terms. Uh, it's, uh, I think, more meaningful when we start talking about real people. To, to War to a child may mean uh, witnessing atrocities of war, may mean separation from uh, parents and other caregivers. Uh, to a woman, uh, war may mean gender-based violence. It may be becoming a widow at an early age. Uh, to an older person, it may mean uh, displacement, may mean loss of medical care, it may mean no access to uh, medications, and of course, many other problems as well. 
to a displaced person, it may mean loss of community, separation from family, and uh, desperate attempts at accessing basic needs like food and water. To a military veteran, uh, war may mean uh, years and years of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Uh, to a person whose family members have been killed, maybe profound, for certain, it would be a profound sense of loss for, for many years to follow. Uh, there are important trends to understand in terms of war in the 21st century. There are actually an increased numbers of wars. Many of them occur in far off lands than don't make the front pages of our papers uh, or even the inside pages of our newspapers or our, our websites, news websites. Um, most wars today are interstate conflicts and most of those are civil wars which encompass an entire uh, country. And increasingly those civil wars uh, involve uh, other countries. So they're internationalized. Uh, much warfare today is urban warfare with extensive use of improvised explosive devices and uh, the increased uh, impact of those uh, attacks on civilians. Civilians and civilian infrastructure are both indis uh, indiscriminately affected during a war by various weapons, but also increasingly targeted. Almost 80 million uh, people are uh, displaced in the world, and you'll hear more about that later. Uh, roughly 60% uh, of them are displaced within their own countries, and most of the people who are displaced worldwide are displaced by war. And it's important to understand that the indirect consequences of war in terms of illness and injury and, and premature death occur primarily because of damage to the civilian infrastructure. Uh, bombs and built bullets and other weapons uh, on average cause 5%, 10% of uh, deaths in most wars today. Most of the deaths and severe illnesses are in fact due to damage to the civilian infrastructure. Uh, militarism and military expenditures are an uh, important part of this uh, equation in terms of why there's so much war in the uh, world today. Uh, the United States military budget in fiscal 2019 was over $700 billion. That's more than the next 10 countries combined, Russia, China, Germany, France, uh, the United Kingdom, and so forth. The next 10 countries combined do not equal the U.S. defense or military budget. And there's immense diversion of resources uh, away from health services, education, and other social benefits uh, to support our military. Uh, there are many causes of war. A colleague of mine says a lot of this boils down to grievances and greed, but specific causes include disputes over power or land, socioeconomic and political inequities, and of course, poverty, ethnic and religious tensions, militarism, availability, widespread availability of weapons, um, and government failure to fulfill the basic needs of their populations. But, and there are also emerging possible risks for war, including increasing nationalism, erosion of the world order that is largely, although not entirely, but largely kept uh, global peace since the end of World War II, climate change, which represents new risks, cyber warfare, um, and there's already a precedent where cyber warfare has led to uh, uh, war physical warfare. And COVID-19, although we do not yet know whether COVID-19 will lead to, in fact, more armed conflict or less. And by the way, I'm using the terms armed conflict and war interchangeably. Civilians are affected by indiscriminate attacks, by bombs, drones, cluster munitions, landmines, unexploded ordnance. I'll say more about some of these in, in just a moment. Uh, but also uh, by uh, targeted attacks. And some indiscriminate attacks in the past have occurred on a large scale, like the firebombing of many cities in Europe and in Japan during World War II. This is an aerial view of the firebombing of Osaka, Japan in 1945. 
And on a more personal scale, there's an indiscriminate attack on a little boy, this 10-year-old boy in a Cambodian refugee camp in Thailand. You can see he has surgical scars uh, because he was wounded in his left shoulder and his abdomen. He survived, but his four-year-old brother, who was who, whom he was carrying across the Thai-Cambodian border, uh, did not survive. Landmines represent a major problem. They are still deployed in almost 60 countries. They make land unusable, and of course, they cause many injuries and deaths annually. Uh, children and displaced people are at most risk. Uh, victims tend to live far from medical care, so if they get affected by a landmine explosion, it's not likely that they will survive. Uh, and of course, it leads to many amputations of legs and arms. The Mine Ban Treaty, which came into effect in 1997, prohibits the production, stockpiling, and use of landmines. 164 countries, but not the United States, uh, have signed the, the, um, the Mine Ban Treaty. And the United States, along with Russia, Pakistan, India, China, and some other countries, still stockpile large amounts of um, uh, anti-personnel landmines. This little boy uh, lost a leg, part of a leg, as a result of a landmine in Cambodia. At one point, one out of every 250 people in Cambodia was a landmine victim. Uh, and there are targeted attacks uh, on civilians and civilian infrastructure, physical and sexual assaults, and also bombing of hospitals and clinics, agriculture and food systems, and water treatment uh, plants and uh, water supply systems. This is a bombing of a pediatric ward after the Gulf War um, in 1991. Uh, and this is a woman rushing her uh, young child to an emergency department, only two that were functioning during the beginning of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. There are increasingly attacks not only on healthcare facilities, but on physicians and other healthcare workers. In Iraq, for example, in 2008, a study found that 80% of physicians working in emergency hospitals had been assaulted by patients or family members. And in Aleppo, Syria, in, by 2015, more than 95% of the physicians had fled or had been detained or killed. There are only 36 physicians remaining. Immunization programs and other public health services are disrupted. And in many places, there's no safe water supply after a war. This picture was taken in Iraq uh, after the Gulf War in 1991. The water treatment plant was plants were destroyed, and women, uh, mainly women who were traditionally gathering water, gathered water from rivers that they knew to be contaminated, but it was the only water sources that were available. Uh, better to drink contaminated water than than to die of thirst. Uh, civilians are affected by many diseases, as already stated, malnutrition infectious diseases, mental disorders, abnormal pregnancy outcomes, and uh, to make matters worse, inadequate medical care. This is a seven-year-old girl in a refugee camp in Thailand. She weighed 27 pounds. When I came home from working in the refugee camp, I almost didn't recognize my one-year-old son who weighed the same amount, 27 pounds. Malnutrition is a major problem, uh, and so are many infectious diseases. Children who get measles or diarrheal diseases or upper respiratory tract infections are much more likely to become severely ill or to die uh, because they are malnourished and are giving, living in a, a resource poor or have lived in a resource poor environment. Mental health disorders are common. This 12-year-old boy could no longer see. He had so-called physiological blindness after having witnessed both of his parents being killed during the Cambodian genocide. Vulnerable groups are women, children, uh, displaced persons, members of minority groups, and indeed many others. Uh, uh, indigenous peoples, for example. Um, 
10% of women worldwide uh, are displaced by war or live close to war zones, that is within about 30 miles of war zones. Uh, Gender-based violence uh, affects many women. One survey found uh, in one war zone, more than 20% of women had been uh, either raped or otherwise affected by gender-based violence. Uh, there's a very good book that recently came out by uh, Christina Lamb entitled Our Bodies, Their Battlefield. Uh, she's a British journalist who has covered many wars for, for, for a number of years. And she uh, uh, states in the book, which is accurate, that rape is the most uh, neglected war crime. Women also suffer from adverse pregnancy outcomes. Many women become widows. In uh, India, which has more war widows than any other place in any other country in the world, there's 25,000 war, uh, war made uh, uh, widows, uh, many of them having become widowed uh, before the age of 30. Uh, ch children suffer, of course, as well, quite a bit. 16% of children worldwide are either displaced by war or live close to war zones. They have high death rates, mainly due to the combination of malnutrition and infectious diseases, loss of education, loss of community, mental disorders, and many, about a quarter of a million worldwide, have been forced to become child soldiers. There have been child soldiers in wars in 36 countries in the last two decades. Here's some child soldiers in Sierra Leone right before they were reintegrated back into society. And of course, that brings up, raises the issue of uh, the importance of reintegrating these children. And of course, many other people who are displaced in various ways by war. Uh, there are almost 80 million displaced people in the world, 60% uh, internally displaced, who are far worse off in general than refugees who uh, cross borders and are helped by uh, other countries, both the host governments and international agencies. Most displaced persons are women and children. They have high morbidity and mortality rates, inadequate health care and other services. This is a makeshift uh, tent uh, city for displaced people, internally displaced people in Somalia. Uh, this picture I took in a refugee camp in, in Thailand for Cambodian refugees. Um, it demonstrates a couple of things in terms of environmental issues. Woman co cooking over a, uh, an open fire like this, generating smoke, uh, which can cause respiratory irritation. Uh, but also, uh, refugees are often forced to gather firewood, including cutting down trees, in order to uh, cook food in refugee camps. And so they're really given no other choice, but if they want to cook food, to gather firewood and, and um, uh, cut down trees in the, in the process. Many of the countries that host refugees have difficulties uh, meeting the needs of their own uh, populations. Here are the four leading countries in terms of numbers of refugees that they're hosting. All of them are countries that have challenges meeting the needs of their own populations to begin with. Air pollution, uh, water pollution, land pollution are important issues with regard to war and the preparation for war. Military forces use fossil fuels, which contribute large amounts of greenhouse gases. Air is contaminated during battles by chemicals, by the destruction of buildings. During the Gulf War, retreating uh, Iraqi troops set fire to 600 oil wells uh, in uh, Kuwait, causing a great deal of air pollution. And this development and testing of weapons, notably uh, the open air testing, atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons uh, from the late 1940s uh, to about 1980, uh, caused much radioactive fallout and uh, wide dissemination of radioactive materials. Um, uh, two large meta-analyses have demonstrated that conflict, various forms of conflict, uh, is associated uh, and uh, seemingly resultant from high temperature and or extremes of precipitation, that is drought or flooding. Now, there are many conceivable mechanisms on how this might happen. Here's one that I'd like to sort of chart out with you, high temperature and drought, 
leading to crop failure and damage to farmland, leading to food shortages, loss of income, and stress migration. That is, farmers and their families being forced to, to move to cities um, where they may contribute to existing socioeconomic and political instability, and ultimately contribute to, to maybe not be the only cause, but to contribute to war. Now, this may seem theoretical, but this is actually what happened in Syria from 2006 when a great drought began, the worst in a century. Uh, much farmland was turned to desert. Many animals died. Uh, people were forced, about a million people, farming uh, uh, families were forced to move to cities. And that contributed to not certainly the major factor, but a contributing factor to the start of the civil war in Syria, which has claimed almost half a million lives and led to 12 million people being displaced. Conventional weapons include small arms and light weapons. Primarily, these are the major weapons in most wars, most civil wars. The international arms trade um, continues to go on at a very high level, uh, making arms available in many countries throughout the world. And the United States is the largest supplier of uh, international in the international arms trade. A hopeful sign is the recent uh, is the recent adoption of the arms trade treaty, which requires countries to not sell arms to those that might violate humanitarian law or support terrorism or organized crime. Another issue is armed uh, drones or un unmanned aerial vehicles, um, which have been used extensively by the United States to uh, attempt to kill so-called terrorist or suspected terrorist suspects in other countries, largely uh, Pakistan, but also Afghanistan and elsewhere. Uh, often civilians have been killed uh, in, the, in the process. Uh, another issue in terms of the ethics of war is the fact that the people who operate these unarmed drones, which could be used not only to fight terrorism, so to speak, but uh, could be used in, in battles and wars, uh, can be operated by uh, people halfway around the world who aren't at risk themselves of being injured uh, during a war. There's all kinds of ethical issues being raised uh, by that. Uh, weapons of mass destruction include chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. Uh, they were uh, Chemical weapons were first used in World War I. They were used by Germany in the gas chambers in the concentration camps in World War II, by Japan uh, in the 1930s. In, in, uh, in, I'm sorry, there were two attacks in Japan in the 1990s. They were also used by uh, Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War and by uh, Saddam Hussein against uh, Iraqi Kurds. Uh, and they've been used multiple times. Some people say as many as 300 times by the government of Bashar al-Assad in Syria against his own people. The Chemical Weapons Convention, which was uh, formally put into effect in 1997, has been hugely successful. Um, although the, these weapons have been used recently in Syria a number of times, they have been almost completely destroyed uh, by all the other, almost all the other holders of, of uh, chemical weapons. The United States is planning to destroy its two remaining stocks within the next two years. Uh, biological weapons have been used sporadically over the years, as shown here. The Biological Weapons um, uh, Convention, although not adequately funded, arguably, has still had a profound effect on limiting the uh, development, uh, production, and certainly the use of biological weapons. Um, the United States and Russia and other countries no longer have offensive biological weapons, but the United States and Russia still conduct uh, biological de uh, weapons defense research which still represents a problem because uh, these uh, agents could uh, leak out of these uh, laboratories, uh, one of which is in Boston, 
and conceivably could cause a risk to the surrounding community. Uh, the use of nuclear weapons occurred twice at the end of World War II, as we're all aware, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, 200,000 or more people died within uh, immediately or within the next few months, and many more due to leukemia and many cancers in the years that follow, of course, long-term uh, psychological effects. Over 500 tests of these weapons in open air, as I mentioned before, and underground tests since then, uh, although many of those have ceased. Environmental contamination from radioactive fallout, uh, increased leukemia and other uh, blood-related cancers downwind, and uh, uh, testing caused the total destruction of some Pacific atolls, uh, such as Bikini Atoll in 1946, and caused uh, radioactive fallout uh, to populations, including the Marshallese Islanders uh, who lived uh, in that area. Uh, there's uh, remaining, of course, serious risk of nuclear war today. Nine countries hold more than 13,400 nuclear weapons, about a quarter of which are uh, could be launched in a really short period of time. The largest hydrogen bomb was, is 3, 000, was 3,000 times, packed 3,000 times more explosive force than the bombs dropped in Japan. Proliferation of nuclear weapons represents a threat, so does accidental launch, and nuclear winter, even a small-scale nuclear war, so to speak, between uh, Pakistan and India could cause a nuclear winter that could lower temperatures uh, globally and cause widespread famine, causing uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions, of deaths. Uh, water pollution has occurred as due to, due to uh, ocean dumping of chemical weapons after World War II, and since then, groundwater contamination on military bases and radioactive materials, including downstream from the Soviet uh, and Russian nuclear weapons facility uh, in Semipalyatinsk in, in Russia, where the Tekka River downstream has been contaminated with, with radioactive material. And land is contaminated with explosive remnants of war like landmines, as well as depleted uranium used in, uh, to, to make shells um, uh, harder and uh, defoliant chemicals such as Agent Orange, a defoliant used by the United States extensively uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, more than 5 million Vietnamese people had been exposed. It contains a potent carcinogen. Uh, there's some studies from Vietnam showing increased uh, birth defects among people who had been exposed. U.S. military uh, were exposed. Uh, when they developed a number of cancers and other diseases, the United States government ultimately determined that they should receive compensation uh, for those uh, diseases. Um, Agent Orange destroys mangroves in Vietnam, uh, as well as affecting the health of the people. And also our bomb has destroyed uh, mangroves in, in Vietnam. Uh, the bomb craters uh, created um, uh, stagnant water uh, ponds where mosquitoes uh, carrying malaria have bred. Uh, prevention of war can be approached in a number of ways and, and the prevention of the uh, health consequences of war. We can think of it with a public health framework such as primordial prevention, which addresses the root causes of war, primary prevention, which prevents disputes from escalating into war, secondary prevention, which uh, minimizes the impacts of war, and tertiary prevention, which after war, helps to restore essential services, rehabilitates and reintegrates people, uh, such as displaced per, uh, people and um, child soldiers, and supports programs for truth, justice, and reconciliation. And we could apply this public
mental health model for prevention to war as well with uh, interventions uh, to address people, uh, weapons, and the conditions in which people live in an attempts to minimize the likelihood of war. Strategies focused on people as shown here, such as increasing understanding and tolerance, promoting economic independence and interdependence and so forth, uh, reducing weapons, uh, eliminating weapons and uh, uh, strengthening international treaties and trying to reduce military budgets and uh, strategies that deal with uh, the conditions in which people live, such as promoting human rights, reducing poverty and socioeconomic inequities, improving education and employment opportunities, and ensuring the rule of law. I showed this before as, as a framework and, or a mechanism or pathway by which um, climate change can lead to war. And that's the, sort of the bad news. But the good news is that each of these points is shown in green here. We can intervene to prevent the uh, a cascade of these steps moving downstream, so to speak, so that when there is high temperature and drought, we can provide TA that is technical assistance, irrigation and resistant seeds. Um, if there's crop failure, uh, food and income support can be provided to communities and so forth, ultimately, which may prevent uh, conflict. Uh, there are important roles for physicians and medical students and other uh, healthcare uh, workers, uh, medical care for the victims affected, documentation and research, education and awareness raising, and advocacy, which can be done best through organizations such as APHA, Physicians for Human Rights, and Physicians for Social Responsibility, and its international organization, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. So there are reasons for hope, despite all the uh, horrors of war that I presented. Many disputes are indeed being settled peacefully. There's increasing respect and protection of human rights. Uh, older treaties have been effective and newer treaties uh, bear some hope for the future. Uh, Gender-based violence and mental disorders are increasingly being recognized and addressed. There are new approaches, including uh, epidemiological approaches and psychosocial approaches that are being uh, implemented to help prevent conflicts or disputes becoming violent. The humanitarian assistance is becoming more systematic and evidence-based and more people are working on building and maintaining peace. A few takeaway points from this presentation, the impacts of war are extensive. Civilians are frequently impacted in the ways that I described. The long-term impacts of war are profound, but much can be done to prevent the health impacts of war and to prevent war itself. There is reason for hope. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. So our next uh, speaker is Dr. Fatima Karaki. She's an associate uh, professor at uh, UCSF's Department of Medicine. She is also the founder and director of the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Health Initiative, or RAHI, at UCSF, which fosters academic activity, research, education, advocacy, and community awareness in refugee health. Her academic and clinical interest is in refugee and asylum seeker health, with a focus on the Syrian refugee crisis in the Middle East. She is a founding member and board member of the North American Society of Refugee Healthcare Providers, or NASRAP, and co-chair of its research committee. Welcome, Dr. Karaki. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I'm Fatima Karaki. I'm the director of the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Health Initiative. And um, I'm, I decided to talk to you all today about the global refugee health crisis, but specifically about the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on refugees. So we'll split our time about half of the time talking about the um, 
global refugee health crisis and half of the time talking about the pandemic. Uh, for those of you who have heard me speak before, you know that I always start with this picture. This is a picture of my village in Lebanon, and this is our farm. Uh, our farm was in the Bikar Valley, which is about an hour away from Syria. You can see that we grow grapevines, and then in the foreground, you can see that we are growing onions. And this is a picture of a Syrian refugee living on our farm. Um, so Lebanon at the peak of the Syrian civil war was hosting over a million and a half Syrian refugees in a country of just 6 million people. So we had the highest number of refugees per capita of any country in the world. Um, and so every year when I would go back to visit, I would see how the refugees were living and also how it was affecting my country as the host country. And so I started volunteering and that's how I got involved in this field um, and ultimately founded Rahi. So let's look a little bit closer at the numbers that were mentioned by our moderator at the beginning. Um, I wanna take a big picture look at this and what's happening around the world. When you talk about forced displacement, um, it's not just talking about refugees, but you're also talking about lots of forcibly displaced populations like asylum seekers, internally displaced people, stateless people. And these numbers are growing over time. So this is kind of a busy slide, but if you look at the top left, you see that numbers have doubled in the past decade from around 40 million in 2010 to close to 80 million today. And the other thing that you see on the top right is that the number of internally displaced people, in other words, people who have for been forced to leave home but remain have relocated still within their own country, that's about double the number of refugees, which are people who actually left their country. And the reason for that is that if you think about it in your own circumstance, if you were forced to leave your home, you would be more likely to relocate somewhere that's still in your country. Um, and similarly, if you're forced to leave your country, you're most likely to relocate to a country that shares a border with your country. And so if you look at the bottom right, at the source countries of refugees and the hosting countries of refugees, you can almost draw a straight line right across, right? So you can see that you know, uh, refugees going from Syria are moving into Turkey, refugees from Venezuela are moving into Colombia, et cetera. And what that means is that even though we get a lot of attention to refugees and asylum seekers coming to the US and Europe, the fact is that 85% of the world's forcibly displaced people are hosted in developing countries. You can see that on this map here. You know, the 85%, so the bulk of that burden is really hosted by developing countries in the Middle East and in Africa. Um, and even though we get a lot of media attention and you hear a lot of news stories uh, focusing on the US and Europe, these are the countries that are really dealing with those large numbers of people. So how is the US involved? Uh, we do resettle a certain number of refugees in the United States per year, and that number is determined annually by the president. Um, so it peaked under President Obama at 110,000. And then under President Trump, we saw the lowest numbers of refugee resettlement in the history of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, dropping to its lowest last year at 18,000. Um, and that number is just a cap on the number that can be resettled per year. So last year, for example, that whole program of resettlement was frozen in the context of the pandemic. So we didn't even receive 18,000 refugees. We received about 11,000. If you compare that number to the global number of refugees of over 25 or 26 million, you can see that it's really just a drop in the bucket in terms of our 
efforts at uh, addressing forced displacement in the world. And I'll talk a little bit more later about some of the issues that we have um, on the border with asylum seekers on the US-Mexico border as well. First, I wanna switch gears just a little bit and talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it has affected refugees. So this is a picture of Kutupalong refugee camp, 600,000 Rohingya refugees that have fled from Myanmar live in this camp. It's one of the largest refugees, refugee camps in the world. Um, the, and, and they're living there at a population density of 41,000 people per square kilometer, which is about double the sort of recommended humanitarian standard by the, U, by the UN, okay? Uh, so if you think about COVID and the things that we try to do to prevent it, like social distancing, masks, hand washing, um, and you also think about the fact that there are really severe water shortages in a lot of refugee camps. So many refugees have less than 15 liters per person per day of water. For comparison here in the US, we use about 333 liters per person per day. So preventative measures like social distancing and hand washing can be virtually impossible in an overcrowded refugee camp. And so early on in the pandemic, there were several models um, and projections that if a COVID outbreak occurred in a refugee camp, it would be absolutely catastrophic, causing hundreds of thousands of infections, thousands of hospitalizations, and, it, and many, many deaths that would collapse an already very strained health system. And yet, interestingly, so far what we've seen is just 28,000 cases of COVID among 26 million refugees. So if you look at this map of where the COVID cases are in the world, it does not at all match up to the map that I showed you just a couple of slides ago of where the refugees and internally displaced people are. Um, and so those projections have really not been borne out and we haven't seen a high burden of COVID in refugees. And um, it's really not clear why this is. There's a lot of different theories. You know, a lot of refugee camps are rural and access is very restricted. So there's a theory that it's actually more difficult for COVID to enter those camps. Many refugee camps have a much younger demographic. So in many of them, over 50% of the population is under the age of 18. And we know that younger people are less affected by COVID. There's theories that they're just not testing for COVID, but at the same time, we're also not seeing higher death rates, which we would assume we would see if we if we were having a lot of COVID cases in refugees. Um, so the fact is that actually it's just still too early to tell and the models are only as good as their underlying assumptions. So that remains to be um, seen over time. What we do know um, is that the biggest impact actually of the COVID pandemic on refugees has been on their resettlement and restrictions of their movement. Because if you remember, many countries closed their borders in the, in the context of the pandemic. Um, and when countries close their border to combat virus spread, they also close their borders to people who still are seeking and need protection, whether there is a virus or not. So the moratorium on resettlement from March to June of 2020 meant that refugee resettlement numbers dropped drastically worldwide, not just from here in the US, but around the world. And so there's a, there's a general feeling in this field that the pandemic has been a convenient excuse to violate refugee rights 
and to block people from seeking asylum, which is a basic human right. So for the next few slides, I just want to take a look at some of the largest refugee populations in the world today um, and see how COVID has been affecting them. So just a couple of examples to drive this point home. So Syria has the highest total number of refugees, 6.6 million. And um, even before the Syrian civil war started, the main cause of death in Syria was actually non-communicable or chronic diseases, things like heart disease and cancer. Um, and the pandemic has caused massive disruption of the treatment of chronic diseases with many health facilities closed. Refugees are unable to receive care or obtain chronic medication. So for example, a diabetic can't get insulin if their pharmacy is closed. Um, a cancer patient can't receive their chemotherapy if their clinic is closed. And a man like this, who's right now hooked up to a dialysis machine in this picture, he needs dialysis to stay alive. So if due to the pandemic, his access to that, that treatment is restricted, it means not only that these refugees who have chronic disease are at high risk of disability and death from their chronic diseases, but it's also a vicious cycle because people who have chronic diseases are also at a higher risk of complications and death from COVID if they catch COVID. Venezuela has experienced the most dramatic increase in displacement over the past few years, going from just 6,000 refugees in 2010 to over 3.6 million Venezuelans displaced abroad today. So this is the largest re recorded refugee crisis in the history of the Americas. And not only have over 30,000 health professionals left Venezuela in recent years, so there's huge staff shortages there, but the number of health professionals dying of COVID-19 in Venezuela is the highest in South America. One third of COVID deaths in Venezuela is of health professionals who caught COVID due to a lack of PPE. Many of their laboratories are closed or only open part-time, so it's difficult to even get COVID testing, let alone get treatment. South Sudan is the youngest country in the world. It got independence in 2011, and then civil war broke out in 2013 that has produced 2.3 million refugees. The pandemic has led to a worsening economic situation, loss of employment, and increases in food prices. So there's a disruption in food supply chains because worsened because of the restrictions on movements of goods during the pandemic. And so there were already millions of people suffering from acute malnutrition, but an additional 1.7 million are food insecure due to the pandemic. And also a lot of organizations who like the World Food Program, et cetera, who donate food their efforts have been diverted to the pandemic. And so they've had to decrease rations of food as well. And then Yemen. Yemen was already the worst, world's worst humanitarian crisis even before the pandemic. And it's only made the situation worse. A total blockade by air, land, and sea imposed by the Saudi-led coalition means that refugees cannot escape the civil war in Yemen. They can't leave. So there's 3 million internally displaced people who cannot escape Yemen. 75% of their population is in need of humanitarian assistance. And the total blockade means that food cannot get into a country that imports 90% of its food. And fuel cannot get into the country, so they can't run their wastewater treatment plants. And so this has led to a really horrific famine and the worst cholera outbreak in recorded history. So you can see these two pictures of a, a five-month-old baby boy and a seven-month-old girl. Both of these children died shortly after their pictures were taken. So I'm gonna bring us back home for my last couple minutes. Um, even prior to the pandemic here at home, we were experiencing large numbers of asylum seeker 
uh, of asylum seekers coming from the Northern Triangle in Central America. Um, and the advocacy director of Am Amnesty International has said, the pandemic gives the perfect excuse to do what they wanted to do since day one, which is end access to asylum at the Southern border. So before the pandemic, asylum at the Southern border at the US-Mexico border had already essentially been cut off by various policies, right? So the Trump administration imposed metering. So they put a limit on the number of asylum applications per day. They also put in place the migrant protection policy, excuse me, migrant protection protocols or remain in Mexico policy, which meant that asylum seekers had to wait for their application to be processed in Mexico rather in the US. They're, they narrowed eligibility criteria and they applied a transit ban, which meant that asylum seekers could not apply for asylum in the US unless they had already been rejected by another country that they had transited through. And that's all on a background of all the things that you've been hearing about in the news with family separation, detention of unaccompanied minors, all these pictures of children in cages. And then with the pandemic, all, all asylum hearings were suspended and the administration used CDC guidelines to immediately deny asylum to anyone entering the country irregularly. So it was really, really devastating um, for anybody seeking asylum at the border. The last thing I'm gonna mention is how COVID affects newcomer, newcomers in our own communities here in the United States. I work as a physician. I treat COVID patients at San Francisco General Hospital. And I will say that, uh, you know, 15% of San Francisco is Latino or Latinx, but 40 to 50% of our patients, of our COVID patients in the hospital are Latinx. And 90% of our COVID patients in the hospital do not speak English as a first language. So we know that newcomers to our country, not just refugees, but immigrants and asylum seekers, um, they have a lot of characteristics that put them at higher risk of both getting COVID and having more severe disease. All of these social determinants of health that I've listed here. And we see that um, if we look at the outbreaks that have happened, a lot of them are of essential workers in meat packing plants, et cetera. Um, and so that's just something to really keep in mind when we're thinking about who our vulnerable populations are at home and what we can do to help. I'm just gonna talk about my organization Rahi for a minute. I did a lot of um, volunteering in refugee health and I realized that refugees were not receiving the highest quality healthcare and it very much stemmed from a lack of data on what refugees needed in their healthcare. And so my organization Rahi really tries to foster research in an effort to improve the evidence base in order to improve the quality of care that refugees are receiving. And if you'd like to learn more about our work or listen to our symposium, you can visit our website, rahi.ucsf.edu. Everything that we do is volunteer-based and we would love your support. And with that, I think I'm gonna end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Karaki. Uh, our next uh, speaker, uh, is uh, Dr. Sarah Coates. Uh, Dr. Coates completed her dermatology residency at UCSF in 2019. And in 2020, she completed a Fogarty International Center Global Health Fellowship through the University of California Global Health Institute. She has worked extensively in Africa, including Tanzania and Uganda. And in 2020, she published The Effects of Climate Change on Human Health in Africa, a Dermatologic Perspective a report from the International Society of Dermatology Climate Change Committee. She is currently a pediatric dermatology fellow at UCSF 
and as well a member of the board of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility. And uh, welcome hearing from Sarah. My name is Sarah Coates. I'm a pediatric dermatology fellow at UCSF and also have about 10 years of global health experience working in various parts of East Africa, including Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda. And we're going to talk today about the effects of climate change on human health in Africa. And we'll do it with a dermatology lens because that is my specialty. So as an overview of what we're going to talk about today, we're gonna to go over why Africa is especially vulnerable to climate change. We'll talk about how climate change impacts human health and some of the diseases that are most specifically going to be affected by a changing climate. So why is Africa especially vulnerable to the health effects of climate change? The first might be a little bit intuitive. It's its geographic location. This is an equatorial setting with a high temperature uh, at baseline. And we actually expect temperature rises here to be greater than they are um, overall for the rest of the globe. And what that means is more frequent heat waves, which have consequences both for human health and for the areas of the continent that we're able to actually inhabit. Likewise, desertification or the process by which land becomes converted to desert is accelerating in Africa. Over the next 30 years, about one quarter of Africans will experience water scarcity and certain regions will become entirely uninhabitable. And that is really challenging in settings where you're requiring to live off the land um, and will force migration. And related to that, Africa has a largely agrarian economy. About 30 to 40% of its GDP is tied to agriculture, but perhaps more importantly, three quarters of its population relies on agriculture as a primary income source. And what is anticipated is that as a result of climate change, crop yields over the next 30 years may decline by about 50%. And that's because of higher temperatures, water scarcity, and extreme weather events. And having spent quite a bit of time in this region, I can say that some of the people who are the biggest believers in climate change that I've ever met are the farmers in this region who are experiencing a lot of instability in their ability to grow crops. And then finally, there's already armed, ongoing armed conflict as a result of resource scarcity, which has led to mass displacement. And one example of that is occurring in the Sahel region, which is the name for the area just south of the Sahara Desert. This is a part of the continent that's hit regularly by droughts and floods. And as a result of impaired food security, there has been ongoing armed conflict and displacement for the last several years. As of 2019, about 24 million people in this area were therefore relying on humanitarian aid. So shifting gears a little bit into thinking about how climate change impacts the health of patients in this area, there are several things that we'll talk about today. I'll go into each of these. The first is heat waves. I mentioned these earlier. Uh, this impairs our ability to regulate temperature and is associated with uh, morbidity as well as mortality. Poor air quality affects both the cardiopulmonary and the, the skin systems. Changes in temperature, humidity, and rainfall affect the burden of vector-borne diseases in different populations. Frequent extreme weather events lead to injury and displacement. And then when crops fail and people are displaced, there is in turn a rise in poverty, malnutrition, and neglected tropical diseases. So I'm a dermatologist, so I think about this from the lens of the skin. The skin has a really important role to play in regulating body temperature. And the way it does this is twofold. So the first is superficial peripheral blood vessels dilate when it's hot. And that's very effective if it's colder outside than it is inside your body. It's a very effective way to get rid of heat. But generally, that's not the case in warmer, hot environments. And so we have this unique human adaptation of eccrine sweating, which is the most important way to get rid of heat when it's hot outside. This is the means by which we cool down as water evaporates from our skin. And importantly, uh, the efficiency of that process depends on how humid it is outside. 
the more human it is, the harder this is. And another important trade-off of this is dehydration. If we don't consume enough water, this is not an effective process. This figure on the left shows exposure to heat waves in the elderly population worldwide. And it's important to keep in mind that overheating is a leading and often understated cause of weather-related deaths. There are lethal temperatures above which humans cannot survive for very long. At 100% humidity, that temperature is 35 degrees Celsius. And at 50% humidity, it's 47 degrees Celsius. And importantly, many parts of Africa, um, as well as parts of the Middle East, are approaching these thresholds. And so that is really important when it comes to which parts of the, the, the globe people are able to actually live in. Air pollution is not caused by climate change. It's caused by the same thing that causes climate change. But I think it's important to mention here because it's become a really big problem in African cities. And um, this photo on the right is from April of 2020, taken about a month after the COVID pandemic began. And people were so disbelieving that they could actually see Mount Kenya from Nairobi that people thought this was a joke. Uh, and that's because Nairobi has experienced the greatest loss of any African city in visibility. And that's as a result of increased particulate matter generation from vehicles and energy production systems. Those are the same things, of course, that drive climate change. And it's important to keep in mind that Africa is urbanizing. Lots of people are moving into cities and this has an important effect on people's health. It leads to COPD and asthma exacerbations. It leads to things like atopic dermatitis, which are pictured here on the left, these chronic itchy like kinified plaques. It can also increase things like acne flares and other inflammatory skin diseases. But air pollution has many important effects and that will only become more prevalent as people are concentrated into these dense urban areas. Injury is another important thing to keep in mind. I, I mentioned the example of flooding as, a, as an example here. Flooding risk is expected to be highest along the coast of East Africa. And we unfortunately saw a really bad example of that in 2019 with Cyclone Idai. This was a terrible storm that hit Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi. It affected millions, it killed thousands, and a lot of people were displaced as a result of this storm. And you can see some examples of the devastation on the right. You can imagine that if you're an agrarian economy that relies on regular agriculture production, this really devastated your way of life for some time to come. During events like this, the skin can be injured, um, which can have both acute and chronic morbidity. Of course, acutely, any injury that happens in extreme weather events allows for a portal of entry for microorganisms. But chronically, non-healing wounds become a very big problem. And this is one of the things that we spend the most time on um, as dermatologists working in this part of the world is managing chronic wounds. People who have wounds like this that are not in a setting where there's wound care capacity will often go months, if not years with these wounds and they never heal. They're out of the workforce. This is a really big problem for people in this part of the world. Infectious disease vulnerability is a really hot topic in climate change. I'm only gonna to touch on this briefly. I think it almost goes without saying that the African landscape and climate are highly favorable to the transmission of vector-borne diseases. You can see that in this map on the right of malaria cases. Africa is, of course, the, the world's hotspot for malaria, especially the most fatal forms. And we know that all aspects of climate affect vectors, affect their animal reservoirs, and affect human behavior. In addition to that, urbanization changes the way that we interact with vectors and animal reservoirs. It brings us into closer contact with them, and that changes the ways the diseases affect populations. We'll take one example of that is the Aedes aegypti mosquito. This is a mosquito species that thrives in the tropics, as you can see on this map. 
and, and it transmits dengue, chikungunya, Zika virus disease, and yellow fever. The capacity for this mosquito to do its thing, to transmit and serve as a vector, is actually the highest that it's ever been. And that's what you're seeing here on this figure on the right, which dates back about 70 years. Mosquitoes, the mosquito survival is optimal at 24 Celsius, and its ability to transmit dengue peaks at around 29. And so as more parts of the world approach that, that temperature for more times throughout the year, there will be more transmission of these diseases. Importantly, it, often, it also loves urban habitats. It breeds in human-made containers like discarded tires or buckets. And so in Africa, the combination of temperature changes and the urbanization that I've mentioned are expected to yield a much more favorable environment for Aedes. And we see that here in this figure, uh, which shows malaria and dengue. The one on the left is, is now, the figure in the middle is 2050, and the figure on the right is 2080. And what you can see here is that malaria's um, con conditions are going to become less favorable in Africa. It's not going to be as easy to get malaria because it's going to become too hot in many parts of the continent. On the other hand, dengue and the other arboviruses that are transmitted by Aedes are, are going to thrive in a changing climate because transmission occurs at slightly higher temperatures. Dengue is one of the fastest, it's the fastest vector-borne disease um, growing worldwide. It's also one of the only diseases, both infectious and not infectious, for which mortality is on the rise. And so what's happening is more people are being exposed to the, the, the virus dengue through the mosquito, which is thriving in new settings. And unfortunately, this has a really huge toll on healthcare systems. Um, millions, if not billions of dollars are spent each year in places like South America and in the Indian subcontinent where this is really taking off. In Africa, we know that this is also already happening. So in Kenya, in one study, about 10 to 20% of, of children who were febrile were testing positive through, for dengue throughout the year. There have also been large epidemics of chikungunya, another virus transmitted by Aedes on the Swahili coast, as well as in Sudan in the setting of major flooding, which triggered outbreaks of disease. And it's important to keep in mind that our efforts, which have been made to control malaria, which has been huge in the last two decades, are not great for controlling this new threat from Aedes. And that's because it bites during the daytime so bed nets aren't that helpful. It breeds in different settings. And importantly, there are no specific treatments for the viruses that this mosquito transmits. I wanna move on to food insecurity. Uh, crop decline as a result of desertification, which we talked about earlier, is going to affect multiple regions. I mentioned the Sahel earlier, the desert uh, of Namibia, and then the Horn of Africa, which includes Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia. The Horn of Africa is actually drying faster than at any time in the last two millennia. It's pictured here on the right. You can see that this landscape is already quite desertified. That's only going to become increasingly true. From a dermatology perspective, these are some of the things that we see in the setting of micronutrient deficiency. So this is a baby with zinc deficiency. They get these classic eroded plaques around the mouth and around the anus. This is an example of niacin deficiency, which I've seen uh, quite a few times actually in Uganda in patients who are on maize-based diets. Uh, they classically get these red shiny plaques distributed in places where the sun shines, which we call photo-distributed. And they become, become, become hyperpigmented and quite debilitating. And then another example is kwashior core. This is um, diffuse protein deficiency, where babies often present with an enlarged belly, like a patient with cirrhosis. 
Um, this is a flake, flaky paint dermatosis from Kwashiorkor. It can also lead to chronic pigment changes, both hypo and hyperpigmentation in affected populations. And then finally, I wanna talk about the health consequences of mass displacement, which is part of the big topic for today. So as a result of all of the forces that we've been talking about, we expect there to be mass migration throughout the continent and then to other continents. This, as we know from experience, disrupts healthcare services, it disrupts disease vectors in their reservoirs, and it hampers things like vaccination campaigns, just basic public health services. In addition to that, when you have refugee camp inhabitation and overcrowding, there are several diseases that are more easily transmitted, which we'll talk about a couple of them today. Those include active parasites, TB, HIV, skin infections, diarrheal disease, and vaccine-preventable illness. One example um, is cutaneous excuse me, leishmaniasis. This is a neglected tropical disease that's transmitted by the sand fly, which you can see here on the right. And classically, it presents with these non-healing ulcers that can evolve into stigmatizing scars. In Africa, leishmaniasis is on the rise. Its highest incidence is in Northern and Eastern Africa, but we're seeing it, for example, in Ethiopia in places that were not previously known to be endemic. And that's thought to be due to a combination of things, um, the spread of this reservoir and vector to new areas because of climate variables, and also changes in the way that we use the land. I wanna give you an example of this fertile valley where if you have a disease that is transmitted from human to vector and to human again, where there's no animal, animal reservoir, you can imagine that in a sparsely populated fertile valley, this doesn't have a chance to take off. But if you transpose that onto this situation, a refugee camp in Eastern Ethiopia, you can start to see why we have reports that in areas of conflict, for example, in Syria, there have been, there's been a recrudescence of old world cutaneous leishmaniasis. And so the concept here is as we displace populations, we get more incidence of certain vector-borne diseases because humans are coming more into contact with them. These are all examples of scabies. There's a myriad manifestations of scabies. This is a mite infestation that is a neglected tropical disease. It affects millions of people worldwide and it's spread through intimate contact. And importantly, people can give themselves strep or staph infections from scratching intensely as a result of an infestation. You can imagine that again, in a setting like this, there are many reports of scabies. So migrants latest health challenge in many instances is scabies reports of scabies outbreaks in refugee camps, and then even reports of trying to do things like mass drug administration to control this infestation in people who are seeking asylum because it's such a heavy burden. And then finally, body lice. So body lice live in the clothing. They are commonly seen in people who inhabit refugee camps and have no access to hygiene. And they transmit, importantly, some really um, significant diseases, including trench fever, wildborne relapsing fever, and epidemic typhus. And what we've seen is that some of these diseases, including Laos-born relapsing fever, are endemic to the Horn of Africa and are being seen in refugees in places like Europe, who are, achieved, or who are in new destination countries, and perhaps coming into contact with healthcare professionals who have not learned to recognize these diseases. This is a really important thing to keep in mind if we're going to care for these patients well. So in summary, Africa is expected to bear the brunt of climate change. That's because temperatures will rise disproportionately there because of desertification, because of infectious disease vulnerability, climate change will infect all types of diseases in this, in this population. 
And we need to think about the effects of malnutrition and neglected tropical diseases in people who are mi migrating to new places as a result of climate change. I want to thank uh, Dr. Coates for her terrific uh, presentation. And we'll move on to our last uh, speaker tonight uh, before we go into uh, broad panelist uh, Q&A. I want to welcome Dr. Rohini Har, who's a, an emergency physician with great expertise in health and human rights, focused on the protection of human rights in times of complex humanitarian conflict and crisis. She is a research fellow at the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley's School of Law and works clinically at Kaiser Medical Center in Oakland, California. Dr. Har's research interests include studying the impact of human rights violations such as torture, violations of free speech and assembly, and war crimes on health. Dr. Har also serves on the board of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, and I want to welcome Rohini. Thank you, Dr. Gould. Um, I'm glad Sarah um, talked a lot about the clinical aspects. I'm going to pan out um, and hopefully come full circle to, to Dr. Um, Levy's talk. So as Dr. Gould mentioned, my work is mostly at the sort of the nexus of human rights, um, conflict and uh, health. And so I wanted to think about the presentation today from the sense of what are the lessons from the human rights and humanitarian experience for climate advocates who I see as all of us, myself included. Um, so maybe some good, the bad, and lots of unfinished business. And I'll try to keep myself short. I know we're short on time today. So um, there's a lot of reasons why I think it's relevant to talk about the humanitarian advocacy and human rights um, advocacy for, for the climate, um, for climate progress. Here's just a few. Uh, there's a similarity in the urgency and the moral imperative. Both kind of advocate for the government itself to act or not act, so that target is the same. The ground is always shifting for human rights. It depends on, you know, who's in control. Same thing for climate change. Uh, both issues, both the human rights advocacy world and uh, climate are cross disciplines. It matters for social work. It matters for health. It matters for politics. Um, and among both groups, and I think this is part of kind of baked into the work, is that there's a real focus on vulnerable groups and justice. These problems are universal. It doesn't matter where you are. And for both, I feel strongly that the consequences of failure are dire. So I'm just going to speak about four lessons um, and and I'm happy to take questions about this before. This is the first time I've given this presentation, so um, there's probably a lot of holes here, and I'm just sort of working out a lot of this framework in my head. So um, if there are holes, please, please let me know later. So the lesson one, I would say, is clear goals. Um, human rights advocacy, starts around and is focused frequently on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the and humanitarian work is primarily focused around the Geneva Conventions or the laws of war. Those were written back in 1864. And 
while there's been multiple iterations of them, uh, they're still really, really strong in something we can hold our um, stakeholders accountable to. For the Universal Declaration, that was in 1948, as you know, and um, and it's not a law, it's a declaration, but it's so clear and simple and easy to read. Uh, here's Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in the spirit of brotherhood. And you know, beyond the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there's covenants on civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. And these are uh, adopted by the UN General Assembly, uh, uh, signed into various governments' uh, laws, and then ratified. And when they are, they do become law. And they're something that we really can use for advocacy. We hold our recommendations to those. We um, we hold our politicians accountable to, to those. And there's obviously many, many other human rights instruments as well. So I would say that in that context, I would love to see for there to be a very, very clear um, climate change declaration or um, something as easy to read. Now I know there are a lot out there, but it hasn't had the level of um, progress, the level of attention, or maybe the level of common knowledge as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and I think that would be a big step. Uh, another thing I'd like to ask you all is, uh, this is a lesson on what not to do. So human rights are framed around the state and its obligations to citizens, right? You have the right to education and nutrition and jobs. Who is supposed to give that? The government. You have the right not to be tortured, not to be killed. You have the right to speak freely. Those are negative rights, but they're still, you know, the government is obligated not to torture you, kill you, or to block you from speaking freely. But there's weaknesses baked into that framework. And I'll just give you a minute to think about what that is. So... I would like to thank uh, Hannah Arendt for this framing uh, in her seminal work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and Susan Zesch, my mentor and professor who um, taught this to me and something I still think about years later. So lesson two is that the framework matters. These are the weaknesses. One is when you talk about the framework in terms of the state owing or the state being obligated, that model prioritizes state sovereignty. And so when the nation state, when that country doesn't comply, there's really no accountability mechanisms that work. We saw that very clearly even three or four months ago when President Trump was um, in control. We see that all over the world that when, when, when specific states don't want to prioritize human rights or prioritize climate work, then there's really no way to get past that. Now, I know um, one of the questions was about the ICC. So we have these really good um, sort of options right now. We have the Rome Statute, which founds the ICC, their International Criminal Court. And that has very clear laws in terms of genocide, crimes against humanity, and crimes of war. But again, states have to be party to that. And even when states are party to the ICC, the ICC prosecutes individuals and not governments. 
And so there's an inherent weakness in how far you can go there. The International Court of Justice is another human rights accountability mechanism. Again, that um, depends on who's willing to comply with that mechanism. That does prosecute states, countries, and not individuals, um, and really hasn't been used enough, but perhaps in the future. And then, of course, we can see that there's um, this idea of universal jurisdiction jurisdiction for these crimes against humanity. So just last week, um, the German courts convicted a Syrian ex-army um, soldier of, these, of crimes. Um, but again, those are pretty weak in that they're convicting individuals. Now, in practice, this doesn't work. These are our um, very much not friends, President Assad and Putin. And when they want to act together, when they um, bomb their own citizens, then there's really nothing we can do in the human rights world. In the same way, we have our Kyoto Agreement, our Paris Agreement, the Sustainable Development Goals, and those are really all framed around holding governments accountable. I don't have an answer here, but I think there's an inherent weakness in how that is. The human rights world focuses, because it can't focus on like hard accountability, on naming and shaming. Um, and that works to some degree, but if you have no shame, it's not going to work at all. The second point, and I think this is highly relevant to the climate movement as well, is that because we're focused on the state, um, we miss the stateless. And I don't mean just refugees, though I think Fatima spoke eloquently about how important it is to think about refugees, but this is why we do, because when you're making demands on the state, we're missing not just the refugees, but people who are disenfranchised, people in conflict-affected populations where this isn't a priority, or fragile states or post-conflict states, or even within those groups, uh, or within countries, oppressed or repressed groups, other vulnerable groups. And so when we're, when we're focusing our climate advocacy on state obligations, we're going to miss this entire group of people. Um, from my work in Syria, I can tell you that even within a conflict, uh, the human rights of those folks who are in the uh, opposition-controlled areas, just not accounted for. And then, of course, refugees, this is in Lesbos, um, and this is on the Bangladesh-Myanmar border, uh, totally not accounted for. The third lesson um, I wanted to mention is that within the human rights world, there's complex interactions. There's complex interactions between um, human rights and their health impacts, uh, human rights violations and their health impacts, uh, and all different things. And so the real work of that is in clear messaging and in um, making sure those, those recommendations are powerful. This, this picture, something about fast food and junk food is just to remind me of how complex that is. So in practice, what do we do in the human rights world? We obsess about the recommendations and what we're trying to say. And I would say the, the lesson there is that we have developed an, a multidisciplinary group. So communication, um, communications experts, uh, legislation experts, litigation experts, advocates, community participate, uh, participants, and researchers have to all kind of work together to get to that progress. 
And I think that would be a powerful lesson as well for um, advocacy. Uh, and then lesson four, finally, is that there is not just room, but a need for everyone. Uh, I will say that the best human rights work that I see is both interdisciplinary, so including all of these different groups, as well as, you know, lawyers, health workers, doctors, um, public health experts, researchers, visual investigation experts, journalists, and, and also intersectional in that it it accounts for all of these different groups and all of the different vulnerabilities. I'll give you a quick example today. Um, this is a report that came out today about violence against healthcare during a pandemic, but it was organized by a nonprofit group, Insecurity Insight, an academic group at Berkeley, the Human Rights Center. We involved doctors, we involved journalists, we involved all kinds of health workers that we interviewed. And on top of that, none of that even can really get published unless the Associated Press picks it up. And you can look at that. Um, I would say that I really think about, you know, the weaknesses and the strengths of the human rights movement. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn. I have kept it quite short today. But again, um, that benchmarks and laws are really useful and declarations, while they seem idealistic, can really clarify the goal. Um, that there's these inherent fragilities in focusing on the nation state, and I don't know how to get past that, but that's kind of what I'm stuck on. Um, that we need to accept the complexities and how complex the interactions are, which Dr. Levy spoke about beautifully, and really um, sort of filter in a very clear message at the end. And we really need to include many, many, many voices. I'll stop there. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Rohini, for uh, your concluding uh, session here, which certainly opens up a lot of uh, questions for all of us uh, on the panel in terms of what do we do about these problems that for, for many of those working in the environmental health space have sort of been offshore. They've been siloed off from our uh, concerns. In terms of questions that have uh, come up, perhaps uh, open this up to any, any of you, because a lot of what we've been focusing on here are the rights of, of, of humans, human rights and the relationships of all these problems caused by war, uh, conflict over resources, whatever. Um, Elizabeth, uh, Milos in the Q&A was, was raising an interesting question about and, and whether it helps us solve the problem as to the fact that uh, Bolivia has enshrined in its own constitution rights of nature. So that we extend the framework beyond certainly uh, without any uh, uh, diminution of the import of all the other issues we've been focusing on here in terms of uh, human health and human experience but uh, does anybody have a comment on thinking about the web of life with, within which all of this is embedded and all that is threatened as well by warfare? Any reflections on Bolivia's uh, constitutional embrace of this concept? I don't know much about Bolivia's um, rights of nature, but I do think it's really provocative and interesting to like move beyond the rights of of humans. <laughs> and I'd love to learn more about that because I think 
I didn't say this in the presentation, but when we talk about all the people who are whose voices are not heard, certainly like Mother Earth is not heard there either. And like that voice is is missing in that. Anyone, anybody else uh, perhaps want to respond to that? Otherwise, um, you know, another question that Elizabeth uh, raised in, uh, in, in the Q&A, and I would welcome other people to also contribute uh, for the time that we have uh, remaining were issues of dealing with privatization. For example, uh, privatization of water in Chile. And this is obviously a common experience throughout the the global capitalist system in terms of the challenges that are brought to people's lives that are uh, more and more stressed out by uh, global warming. So I'd be interested if any of the panelists have a response to that. And I, and I would append uh, just to see some discussion as well, since we're all gathered here in a space that uh, we're normally talking about the normal climate health uh, range of issues what people think are the particular challenges we would have here in our own nation, at a, particularly in a, in a country that on the one hand is doing a lot of good things to reverse what went on in our prior administration in terms of climate and other uh, environmental health issues, but at the same time uh, has not yet necessarily given up the traditional approach that our country has had in terms of the warfare state, uh, the arms sales, and uh, still not even criticizing very obvious human rights abuses, if we're thinking about the uh, most recent uh, revelations about Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia. So why don't I open it up to any of the panelists to uh, respond to any of that? I'm you know, impressed once again on how all these issues relate to one another. I mean, there are any you know, dividing lines that we, you know, that government or academia or other, you know, entities place on these, uh, you know, putting things into separate silos are, of course, artificial and really inhibits our mutual support of one another. And, and these these issues, I mean, not only they cross national borders, but they cross disciplines. And obviously, we need to all be working together in a number of ways. The, the other thing that strikes me is that, you um, you know, obviously, no one administration in, in Washington is, is going to, I mean, even if it weren't for the last four years, is, is going to um, you know, be able to deal with all these things. Uh, it's going to take people working at every level, including at the local level, and, um, you know, seeing, you know, what we can and do, can do in our own, own backyards. And, and uh, you know, for example, refugees who are here in this country and, and, um, and how, how we can... Um, you know, uh, develop partnerships with people uh, around the globe. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that we're all on this panel together by Zoom uh, reminds us that there are some opportunities now that may not even been available a year ago in terms of communicating with people and, and building solidarity and, um, you know, uh, assisting existing movements and creating some new movements, as, as Rohini, for example, suggested. And um, so I, I think there's a time of incredible opportunity, um, but we shouldn't only be focused on, um, uh, you know, the Biden administration, for example, uh, but, but think more broadly in terms of uh, the many opportunities that, that are present. And I, I guess one other thing, and it's so easy to get overwhelmed and, and that's why I, I put the last couple of slides in my presentation to, to you know, to think about not only the, the, the major challenges we face, but the reasons for hope and that we need to 
um, you know, encourage a, a younger generation of, of uh, leaders to, uh, you know, and, and um, mentor them and help develop them to, to become engaged and, and uh, you know, be thinking about the future. So th those are just a few random thoughts, but I, I wanted to just kind of try to initiate the discussion. I can only speak to my own experience um, as a it, it sort of in in healthcare specifically in refugee healthcare. But what I would say is that uh, working in the in different refugee crises around the world, um, it became very clear to me very quickly that um, you know a lot of people find that work to be admirable, but the fact is that um, treating the medical uh, sort of sort of consequences of these crises is really like palliative. It's like treating the symptom of a, a disease, but it's really not at all addressing the underlying issue. Because if you look at the underlying issues causing these these conflicts, they're very much either political or climate driven. Um, and so I really had to change the way that I approached the whole situation, not and just not see myself as a physician, but much more as an activist and a witness and an advocate. Um, and that's very challenging, especially for physicians because um, we, we our, our profession has some of the worst political apathy of any profession actually in studies. And so um, motivating people to get more involved, like, you know, a lot of people like hearing these talks and learning about these things, but how many people actually follow through and call their representatives or advocate for these things? Um, that is really, I think, challenging. And that's why I admire the work of people like Rohini who do zoom out and try to connect with, you know, legal advocates. And, you know, a lot of the, even in the Q&A, the questions are focused on legal issues like things about the constitution and the ICC. And so um, it's not enough to just be focusing on health or these little things like Dr. Levy was saying, it has to be interdisciplinary. So that's what I would say about that. Um, what are, other, do the panelists have any of their own experience trying to connect in this space? I'll, I'll just speak as much to see the conversation as anything else that, you know, we have many of our students are, uh, uh, probably primarily motivated uh, at, at this point in their lives on the climate issues, the typical climate health issues that are, that are in their face. And it, it has been difficult, I'll reflect personally, on being able to bring in the larger issues of militarism or nuclear weapons that PSR has been historically working on. And to be able to not make it an old issue of someone, you know, when I grew up, that was very much on our mind, but to be able to connect uh, in a very organic way, uh, what are these major existential issues that are illustrated through all of your talks and the impacts of uh, all human beings. Have you encountered yourselves any challenges in being able to connect and being able to really be able to build the intersectionality that we need? Sorry, Bob, I maybe, I don't know if this answers your question, but I would say, um, in terms of being able to connect, I think it's like crossing the lines from your group or your expertise into others, which, you know, obviously is very, very um, uh, uncomfortable. But for those of us who, you know, on this panel, many of us have done that. And I think that's where the strength lies is like, like, like 
frankly, like human rights is everyone's lane. <laughs> Climate change is everyone's lane. And to like get yourself uncomfortable and, you know, leave your leave your box and sort of um, expand further. Like when when I first met Sarah at the um, PSR, for instance, I was like, oh, she's a dermatologist. What's this? What's going on in Africa with dermatology? But the linkages that she brought, like those are so unique and open. And I think that's really important. Like we could all bring our expertise and cross it over to different places. Um, and actually, while I'm answering that, I see Naomi asked a question about how much she's doing already and what else could I do? And, you know, if someone had asked me this like five years ago, I would have probably said, wow, you're doing a lot like like good job. But I don't know, more and more, especially with having um, four children in my house, I just feel like uh, this field is wide open. Like there's research to be done on every single aspect. There's advocacy to be done on every single aspect. Frankly, we could all just go vegetarian and that would help a lot. So I think there's um, a lot of like different ways and then people need to engage in a way that like really leverages their expertise and their gifts. But I don't think like anything is enough really. <laughs> and I, I guess I just will add, I mean, speaking to your question and speaking to what Rohini just said, um, I think, and I mentioned this, I think a lot about my experience meeting farmers, which a lot of people in Western Kenya where I worked are farmers. And it was so interesting to see how climate change was so real to them. Um, and they just kind of intuitively know that it's affecting their work already and they're able to communicate about it without it being political or controversial. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> and, um, the weather's changing and they can't grow crops same way that they used to. And I think whatever we can do to amplify those stories, um, is really helpful. Uh, and I also feel like pretty humbled by it. The, the economy there is so different. Like I mentioned, it's so much of the economy is based on agriculture. So many people rely on agriculture that the voice of the farmer is really important. And so whatever you can do to amplify that is, is absolutely essential with your, when you're talking to people who are actually responsible for the, how the public health system is um, organized. Um, so that's just, that's just one example that I think of um, among many. I just really want to thank everybody here. I think you all just gave such extraordinary presentations. I just think this is really a, a wonderful uh, uh, session tonight that really provokes a lot of the questions that uh, Rohini was raising towards the end, how we could best really uh, deal with what often look like such insurmountable problems for us. And the best way we could start that is talking to each other across disciplines and working out the ways that we could best deal with the overwhelming challenges that we face. So thank you to everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.